0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Hannah Webster, and I'm the Joint Head of People and Place Programme here at the RSA. I'm delighted to welcome welcome you all to today's special RSA online event. Over recent weeks, it's been impossible to avoid the conversation about the cost of living crisis and the pressure it will place on millions of our lives. The crisis draws out the worst of the systems that surround us, which push down the impact of global and national challenges onto the individual. Across the UK, people are facing rising inflation and particular pressures on gas prices, and as Jack Monroe's VIMS Boots Index highlights, rising prices for basics are not evenly spread, with those relying on lower-cost products facing an even steeper climb in their outgoings. Recent RSA work finds that almost half of young people are financially precarious and in today's conversation we want to explore how this is showing up in young people's lives, how it ties in with the bigger economic picture in the UK and what can be done about it. There's lots to cover so I'll briefly introduce our panel before we get started. From the RSA I'm joined by my colleague Fran Landreth-Strong, researcher and lead author on our recent report The Cost of Independence uh, which is part of a three-year inquiry into young people's economic insecurity and which we'll share more on today. We're also joined by Nan Macdonald. Nairn is a young advisor for this project, bringing his personal experience as well as his many hats as a community activist, experience as a member of the Scottish Youth Parliament, fellow of the RSA and much more. We have Claire Ryendorp, who is the CEO of Young Women's Trust, championing young women aged 18 to 30 living on low or no income. Claire has 25 years' experience in the charity sector, dedicated to tackling wide-ranging social and economic inequalities. Anoush Shakalayan is our Britain editor at The New Statesman, where she also co-hosts their award-winning podcast. She writes widely on issues of UK politics, policy and social affairs. Welcome to you all, and thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm really grateful for the breadth of experience and perspectives that we have in the conversation today. But of course, an event of this size can't go anywhere near speaking to everything or for everyone. Uh, Hopefully there's a lot we can cover together, but I'd also encourage anyone viewing today to join the conversation in the YouTube chat bar or to tweet using the hashtag RSA cost of living, which my colleagues will pop up there too. So first of all, Fran, I'd like to come to you. Uh, Last month, you launched the Cost of Independence, which is part of the RSA's partnership with the Health Foundation and explores the themes of economic security amongst young people and the impact of living precariously on their anticipation of the future. For full disclosure, I should say, I also work closely with you on this project, but very much under your uh, guidance and leadership. Uh, And I wondered uh, if you were able to speak to us today a little bit more about this work and why you think the experiences of young people is particularly important as we explore the cost of living crisis.
2: Uh, Yeah, of course. Um, Thanks, Hannah. And it's great to be here with all of you today. Um, so, yeah, first to give a little bit of context, um, as Hannah mentioned, at the RSA, we're exploring young people's economic security as part of the Health Foundation's Young People's Future Health Inquiry. Um, And when we talk about economic economic security, we mean the degree of confidence that a person can have in maintaining a decent quality of life now and in the future, given their economic and financial circumstances. Um, So a lot is still unknown about how economic insecurity affects young people specifically. Um, So in order to understand more about this, we carried out a survey last September um, of just shy of 1200 young people all aged 16 to 24 years old from all across the UK. Um, And what we see from our research is that the current system is already failing young people, so even before the cost of living crisis. um, by not protecting their economic security at the time when they're becoming more independent and moving into adulthood. So we found that 47% of young people are financially precarious. That means that even before the rises in the cost of living, almost half of 16 to 24 year olds were either unable to make ends meet only just about able to make ends meet or had a financial situation that changes significantly month to month. So sometimes they can make ends meet, but sometimes they can't. Um, And we also found that young people become more likely to experience financial precarity as they get older within that kind of age bracket. Um, so our data shows that financial precarity rises from 38% of 16 to 18 year olds. So that's our lower end of our survey group uh, up to 48% of 19 to 21 year olds before reaching a higher 57% of 22 to 24 year olds at the kind of older end of, age, older end of that age bracket. Um, and at the same time, as young people get older, we also see that they become more likely to be in debt. They become less likely to have access to their own savings. And they also become less likely to be able to access financial support from their family. So we know that a concerning number of young people today are already moving into adulthood with depleted resources and a weakened safety net. So you add to that the rising cost of living and we can unfortunately assume, I think, that we'll see the number of young people experiencing financial precarity rising even higher. Um, Another worrying trend that we found in our research is that work isn't supporting young people's economic security. Um, So more than half of young people, 56%, um, who are in work are financially precarious. And maybe surprisingly, this is even higher for young people who are in full-time work at 63% almost two-thirds of that group are experiencing financial precarity Um, and we know that young people are disproportionately likely to be working in low-paid jobs in the gig economy and on zero hours contracts Um, they also have lower minimum income guarantees with under 23 year olds not eligible for national living wage um, and under 20s earning as little as £6.83 an hour Um, So they're already in a particularly precarious position as living costs continue to far outpace wages. And that's obviously set to get much worse in coming months. Um, And then when we look at young people receiving benefits, we find that financial precarity is even more acute. And so more than three quarters, 79% of young people receiving universal credit, which is a group, that, as we know, grew in size greatly during the pandemic, are financially precarious. We see that the mechanisms that we have in place to provide a safety net clearly aren't working for a majority of young people already. Um, And then the last thing that I wanted to touch on from our research is um, the effect that being financially precarious has on young people's confidence about their future and also the future of their generation. And so in our survey, we asked young people how worried they were about different aspects of their lives. Um, So that was from their financial, housing and employment situations, their physical and mental health and their future. Um, And what we found was that young people who are financially precarious were more worried about all of those areas than those who are financially comfortable. And the thing that they were most worried about is their future, which two thirds of that group were concerned about, closely followed by their mental health, which is probably unsurprising. Um, and then when thinking about the future, around half of young people that we surveyed said that they don't believe that others like them would be able to do things like own a home, have savings to fall back on and enough to be able to support a family or to be able to retire and live comfortably in the future. So what's clear is that in our current system, many young people lack confidence about their future and don't believe that they'll be able to have the kinds of stability that we might once have expected that we'd be able to have like owning a home or saving for a rainy day Um, so while the cost of living crisis is a really urgent problem and people especially young people need to be actively supported in the immediate there's also a longer term kind of risk and challenge that could um, come about for young people which i think we need to be taking really seriously so yeah that's a quick overview of our research findings and which you can see in a lot more detail in our report the cost of independence which is on the rsa website um, and I guess, I guess my final reflection is just that I think what's most concerning is that we carried out this research before the scale of the cost of living crisis was widely known or being talked about. So we can assume that without kind of appropriate intervention, that more young people will be forced into poverty, and that those who are already struggling financially, they'll face greater challenges. And yeah, I'll leave it there.
1: Thanks so much, Fran. There's obviously uh, so much in there and I'm sure we'll touch on more of it as we go, but I think what's particularly interesting is how there are really tangible and substantial reasons why young people are facing this crisis uniquely and why it's so important that we tackle it as soon as possible so that their futures can feel kind of more optimistic than they might do at the moment. Um, Nan, you're a young advisor on this project so you've been working closely with Fran on on all the things she's been talking about Um, and you've also been involved in lots of work bringing the perspectives of young people into policy making more generally. Um, I wondered what for you felt like the important considerations we should make when thinking about how the cost of living crisis is affecting young people and any reflections you've had on the research more generally.
3: Yeah thanks, and I think it is incredibly important that we look at young people with this cost of living perspective, young people are more likely to be in low security, low paid work. They're more likely to be in that gig economy that France spoke about, but they're also more likely to, you know, either be living at a home or to be in the private rented sector. One of the things that came out um the recently was around the Chancellor's attempt to offset the cost of living in the energy bills was that two hundred pound loan and back in payback. You get two hundred pounds off your energy bill, but then you have to pay back forty pounds over the next five years. You know, there are, there are situations where students and young people are living in HMOs or they're living in, in accommodation, and their landlord will get that £200 off their energy bills, but each tenant has to pay back the £40. Pound. So the government are making money off of this. Young people are more likely to be in that precarious situation of work, but also, you know, you look at student support has been cut, it's less than it was five years ago, six years ago students are more likely to be in poverty and I think what was really interesting about the research that Fran was talking about was looking at how it increases that that curiousness increases the higher we go in the age ranges and I think that's because young people just do do not enjoy the security that the older generation may have enjoyed. I will likely never own a home unless there is a, a huge change of circumstances. I will have to look at the private sector or the social homes I'm 26 years old, I'm an unpaid carer, I'm looking to try and move out of the family home, and it's currently una- unavailable to me. You know, the local rental sector is extortionate. A social home in, in North Asia will cost you £320 a month for a two bedroom. You're looking at that in the private sector, talking £600, that's completely unaffordable. Um, and I think that's why this recently is so key, it's, it's bringing that youth perspective to it. Young people are going to be impacted by this for longer. Um, and also looking at the kind of the cost of living in that more general sense. You know, if you are on a zero hour contract, it's hard to plan to to get over the cost of living. You know, if you're an older person and you're you have an income and you have that security, you can say, right, I know I have this to spend on food every month. Let's shop around. Let's go to Aldi or Lidl or, or some of the discount supermarkets. If you don't know how many areas you're going to have next week, you can't do that planning. So I think this is vital research, and I think it's. It's an area of the cost of living which I think isn't focused on enough. Young people aren't spoken about enough as the, one of the biggest kind of victims of the cost of living. We see a lot around kind of the need to do more to help older people heat their homes. That's great. That is de- desperately needed. But what about younger people who maybe live at home, maybe younger people who are at university or college or in work and can't afford to heat or eat? You know, there needs to be that focus. I think this research really brings it home.
1: Thanks so much Nen, and I think you've led me in quite nicely to bring Claire into the conversation. So as I mentioned up top, Young Women's Trust work focuses specifically on, young people just a quick. On, low, uh, on low or no pay and as well as offering services and support to young people, uh, Young Women's Trust has been exploring the themes of precarity and insecurity uh, and your most recent report, One Size Fits No One, thinks specifically about the complex nature of how young people are unequally affected by global economic forces. You've spoken to the pandemic, but I think the cost of living crisis is another theme. I wondered if you could outline uh, for us what you see in your work about the role that gender plays in the subjective experience of these issues or even the material circumstances that young people face.
4: Absolutely. I mean, starting with the material circumstances, one of the, I mean, I think we should take one step back and one of the really striking things that the peer researchers from the Young Women's Trust found when they looked at the official data sets is how scarce the data is here about uh, young women. There's data about young people and data about women and, and the invisibility of young women in the data reflects the invisibility of young women in, in policy making and, and service design. But what we do know from the data is three or four, I think, really key things about the particular experience of, of young women. Firstly, is the pay gap. And I think there's a wide um, kind of perception that that is uh, an issue for middle-aged women. But actually the reality is it kicks in right at the beginning for young women. And the evidence is that young women are paid eight, nine percent less per hour than young men. But also that young women in their 20s are actually working less hours than than young men. And you put the the pay gap and the the working hours together and young women are taking home 20 percent less per year. Than, than young men. So there's firstly there's an issue about young women being particularly at the sharp end of, of this in terms of their, their financial circumstances. I think the second thing is about the impact of, of unpaid care on, on young women. In this group that we're looking at today we, we focus on 18 to 30 in the Young Women's Trust but here this your report's looking at 18 to 24 and a good number of those women will be carers. Um, of of children and we have the third most expensive childcare system in the developed world and it is really the fact that young women can't afford childcare is holding back their participation in the workplace and we had many stories in our peer research about young women telling us that they they had to stay on universal credit working part-time because if they came off universal credit and had more hours their childcare costs wouldn't be covered so it's really holding back um, young women's participation. And the third thing that we've seen in our research is the scale of economic abuse that young women are facing. One in 10 have reported to us that they've had some form of economic abuse of the partner or family member using control or threats of violence to prevent access to them working or studying or taking their wages benefits or money from them and the way that the benefit system allows only one claim universal credit per household leaves young women particularly vulnerable to economic abuse and all of that is coming together to show a really depressing picture really for young women of high rates of mental health worries money worries and concerns about their future which really chime with the findings um, that you had a fan in your your report and and concerns about um, what will happen for young women as they grow up and face more challenges, I might add, in terms of the pay gap and and the deepening disadvantage. um, And and really another story that we really should bring in here is the lack of data to divide the experiences of young women by ethnicity, by disability, and by where they live in the UK, because our emerging qualitative findings was that those experiences are really different and the disadvantages is much greater for for young women of colour um, for those with disabilities. And things like the uh, the pay gap different ethnic groups is, is much greater, for example, in the capital than in other areas. So there's a, a kind of granular picture here that is also um, not being looked at in the way that it needs to be.
1: Thanks so much, Claire. And I think that's absolutely something I've seen the Young Women's Trust do so well is really clearly pull out the intersectionality in how these inequalities bear out within young women uh, as, as a group that isn't homogenous and faces a lot of complex issues. Um, and I knew it feels like a good time to pull you in as well. Um, because I think there is a difference between the individual experience and the individualization of the kinds of solutions we might come to. And young women and young people might face a lot of a sense of responsibility for overcoming the cost of living crisis. Uh, I was really compelled by your recent piece which argued that actually whilst there is a crisis no one can deny that by calling it what we do a cost of living crisis and associating it with just the very act of living uh, we already start to obscure some accountability about how we can move forward so I wondered if you were just able to share a little bit more about that thinking and how we might better understand the economic picture shaping people's lives uh, at their experience more individually
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, And thanks um, for mentioning my piece. Um, The the research is brilliant and I'm really happy to have been invited to speak on this panel. Um, And this is not to to insult the RSA in any way, but the phrase cost of living crisis, although we all use it and I as a journalist use it. um, It is causing some concerns among um, certain people sort of in the policy, particularly the progressive policy sector and even in the shadow cabinet as well Um, so one shadow cabinet minister described it as a nonsense phrase to me because nobody outside Westminster actually uses it and it doesn't actually immediately resonate with people so part of the problem with the phrase is that it does sound quite clunky cost of living crisis is not how you know it's not how a a person would describe it if they suddenly got a bill through the door they couldn't pay for example Um, so there's that problem with it in that it's slightly sort of wonkish language but also more importantly what you mentioned um, and what I've written about Recently, is that it doesn't automatically draw a line to the reason why living standards are being squeezed. And one of those reasons is what a number of panelists have spoken very eloquently about, and that's that work isn't paying anymore. Um, for many people particularly young people those stats um, from your research Fran are absolutely shocking Um, so and and as well as that the benefits system as well so if you're claiming universal credit you know that's supposed to be your um, safety net and that's also according to to the government for the people in the working condition part of it it's supposed to be your stepping stone to getting into work but it's obviously not getting people out of poverty so those two routes working or uh, claiming benefits or using benefits to try and get more hours uh, to work, for example, none of those options are really helping people sort of improve their living standards. And so a phrase like cost of living crisis doesn't necessarily reflect that it suggests that there's sort of this short-term uh perhaps sort of like a global supply chain crisis that's affecting prices in shops um in the immediate future and we need a little bit of help to get through that sort of firefighting but there's not these long-term and also structural issues that that Claire spoke about so it does sort of um obscure that line of accountability and sometimes um when we use crisis language when we're talking about um You know, even the NHS crisis and other kind of crises, the housing crisis. The problem with using that kind of language sometimes is it suggests to people um, that it's fated, you know, that it's inevitable, that things won't get better. And that uh, it's something that a government couldn't have planned for. It's this unpredictable kind of um, forces beyond our control, like the weather, that they just have to try and help us muddle through as best they can that's not true. I mean, we've mentioned already many things that it is within the gift of government policy to change um, and to mitigate as well. Um, Nan spoke very well about the um, rather odd uh, energy bill loan uh, announced by Rishi Sunak, which really is, uh, like you said, going to take money, particularly out of young people's pockets who will be moving on to live in different housing in before five years time and have to pay that, that £40 back a year, which they uh, didn't benefit from in the first place. So you know, that's just an example of one of many policies um, that, you know, could have been better thought through for the uh, well-being of the people that we've been talking about so far in this panel. So I, you know, I've I've dedicated a lot of my journalism to exploring the cost of living crisis, but it's not actually perhaps the phrase that um, best exposes um, the predicament that people are in and have been in, you know, for over a decade.
1: Thanks, Anusha. I don't take offence, though. I do apologise. <laughs> So I might use that term a few more times as we go through, but I think um, I think what you're sharing around uh, the decisions of policymakers. And Nen, your example, I think is actually a really critical one that don't either apply the lens of young people or even go further and invite young people into the conversation. Who would quite quickly have flagged exactly what you do Nen. that this doesn't work for me. This doesn't actually help me or at worst. It disadvantages me further. Um, and I think that's something that the RSA is really keen on working further on, how do we include the participation and representation of young people or those with the experience of the issues we're talking about into decision making. Claire, you mentioned earlier your peer research and network at the Young Women's Trust, uh, and I wondered if you could share a little bit more about how you've been working with young women in your work, and also what ambitions you might have to embed that further into the systems beyond your own organisation and thinking into policy making further. Sure. I mean, we have a,
4: an advisory panel of 30 young women who shape the, both the strategic direction of us uh, as an organisation, but also go out and as influencers. And we have 30 media volunteers, young women who are speaking to government ministers and MPs, and really working hard to counteract the invisibility of, of young women in, in policy making and, and public debate. And our, our peer researchers um, have been doing research looking at the qualitative experiences of other young women, particularly we initially looked at the missing data um, that we talked about before, and recently we've done the work on one-size-fits-no-one about the benefits system. And it's really rich, those insights from young women, and, and it adds alongside the kind of quantitative data sets that we've got about really what lived experience is. And I think it's increasingly common these days, peer um, research I think is taking off, as uh, and as, as is kind of work with experts by experience and I'm really delighted to see that There's some people doing quite imaginative things like the young foundation using kickstart money for um, apprenticeships to fund peer researchers to support them with their work and we really advocating for that to happen more and more um, so that we can really learn from what it actually is like to to be at the sharp end of these as you say initial sorts of structural problems that are happening and how they funnel down to individual young women of different colours different disabilities living in different places and get a richer picture um, because there's rural and urban dimensions here that are very very different and they're different ages um, different experiences for those who have got caring responsibilities Um, and so we have been yeah really enjoying listening to young women's stories and wanting to to really broadcast them as widely
1: as we can. I really like that idea of repurposing the language of influences as well, kind of influences for social good is a really nice way of thinking about it. Um, And then you've been involved in the work of the RSA, but you've also been involved in projects, bringing your kind of personal perspective for a number of years um, in various different ways. And I just wondered, from your perspective, as someone who does participate in these kinds of conversations, uh, why has it been so important for you to be involved? uh, And why do you think we should think about it more than we maybe already do? I think it's always good to have young
3: people involved in, in policy making and decision making. I think they bring automatically a different perspective, and I think there's something inherently um unique about a young person's perspective, whether we um look at it in the cost of living, whether we look at it of how they approach policy or how they approach their outlook to so, like We you know the young people are, for example, far more interested in, in fighting the climate emergency and taking proactive steps on that than older generations. So it's, it's one of those things that I think young people always bring a different perspective through the roles I've been involved in, whether it's the Scottish Youth Parliament, being a community representative, I've met Secretaries of State, I've met Prime Ministers, I've met First Ministers, and the one thing that always strikes me is they're always very, very um, shocked to hear that you know that young people are experiencing issues that they thought were only for older people or they thought were only for working people, because there is that, that ability within Whitehall, within Holyrood, within all kind of governmental organisations to think well this isn't a young person issue, this is a working person issue or or an adult issue or an older people's issue, well actually almost everything's a young person's issue, you know rising rents are a young person's issue, the ability to have um, good working conditions and workers' rights is a young person issue, pensions are a young person's issue, You know, I want to know when I'm going to be able to retire and if I'm going to get a pension at the end of it, national insurance, everything. And I think that's what people get when they get young people involved. There's suddenly that sort of, you know, eureka moment thinking, well, actually, young people care about all of this. Um, And that's one thing I say in all organisations I'm involved in. I say, well, don't don't just class things as young people's issues because everything's a young person issue.
1: And Fran, I guess from the other side of that project where I know you've been trying to create as much space as possible for young people to be involved in the development of your work, I wondered if you'd share with us why you thought participation was so important, and perhaps if any of your work changed a result of engaging with young people throughout this project.
2: Um, I mean, I really uh, appreciate what you just said, Nan. I think all these issues are young people's issues, and I think it's a, you know we do a real disservice if we don't um, approach things in that way, and I think young people, like you say, will also always bring a different perspective into the room, and you know, I don't think that should ever be overlooked. Um, uh, yeah, I think our our kind of involvement of young people in the project so far has been really, really valuable, really beneficial. Um, I've also really enjoyed getting to know the young advisors working on the project. Um, I think in terms of kind of why that participation is really important, especially around work um that's around sort of policy change, I think ultimately, policy hasn't really adapted to much the world that young people are entering into today and i think that that is because young people's voices haven't been centered in a lot of those spaces or prioritized in those spaces so you know the world is is different today for young people than it was for previous generations um but so much of what we do um, and so much of our policy making is based kind of on those old assumptions that just having a job is enough to give you security that uh, people will be able to find their way onto the property ladder and then that those things kind of by default, we'll be able to set you up for stability in the future, but we know that those things are increasingly inaccessible. For many, if not kind of most, young people, um, and that policy just hasn't really caught up with the reality of that situation. Um, and I think also like that that sort of mentality uh, also seeps into the narrative and the rhetoric that we hear about young people. You know, we regularly hear this really unhelpful harmful, lazy commentary about young people choosing to spend their money on avocados, Netflix, flat whites, whatever it might be, you know, these things will become a bit of an interchangeable symbol for why young people are the problem um, from older generations who aren't living in young people's shoes and they're not facing the reality of, of what it means to be a young person right now. So, yeah, without young people's voices at the heart of all of those conversations, all of those decision-making processes um, and crucially, you know without a diverse range of young people's voices wide range of perspectives in those rooms we're going to stay stuck in that place where policy doesn't actually align with the needs of young people um and and there's also kind of a wider risk in that which is that the more we exclude young people from um the decisions that affect them and for the you know from the conversations about the issues that affect them which as Ned says, is all things um, the more we alienate and disillusion you know, a, gen- a whole generation who don't feel that people leading the country understand or maybe even want to understand what they need to be able to live well. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's hugely important um, that young people can participate in decision-making processes around, around policy change, around all sorts of things. And as Claire said, yeah, I'm also really encouraged to see um, lots more organisations making that shift with things like peer research and stuff, which are really exciting approaches.
1: And I'm struck there's obviously a lot of agreement amongst us about just how important young people's voices and uh, experiences are Uh, but obviously uh, a lot of the measures that are designed to support young people are falling short of this mark something's not quite getting there. Uh, Anoush you mentioned you've written kind of widely around issues of financial support for households and cost of living by another name Uh, and the issues we've discussed for young people are obviously a big part of that I wonder if you had any reflections on how we might motivate decisions makers or policy makers to better engage with young people or to think differently about how policy decisions are arrived at uh, to help us move along, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's a really good question, because the cliche in politics is that young people don't vote, or at least young some young people don't even have the vote. And so, you know, the motivation for, for polit- politicians and policymakers to kind of meet their needs is, you know, cynically just not at the top of their, their agenda. And I think even with the even with the sort of levelling up ambitions of this government um, to try and sort of rebalance opportunities across the country, I do think that there is a tendency to think of the red wall seats, the so-called red wall seats. It says populated only by, you know, cranky, socially conservative, retired people, <laughs> for example, um, um, rather than sort of uh, taking account of sort of the many, many young people living in these areas who, who desperately need those opportunities, new opportunities that they've been promised, and it would be good for, for the government to improve. So I think there's a problem with perception there. Um, there's a problem with sort of Westminster truisms and received wisdom and a sort of cynicism among the, the political class. Um, that needs to be fixed, and I think one of the good ways of doing it is this kind of research where you actually have those young people at your fingertips to give their own experience. Um, it gives the research legitimacy. It also helps people like me as a journalist to actually speak to people who are impacted by the research. You know, I often receive a lot of press releases and and reports, but there might not be someone sort of on the front line of whatever problem or or social uh social trend is being reported who i could speak to to actually hear from the horse's mouth so i think that's really useful um and it's not just you know um organizations using uh, using using sounds very um (laughs) sounds very exploitative but involving young people to do that there's 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 there has been a shift where i do um i do really sort of notice that people uh, who have experience of a certain issue are 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 out there as the experts on it there's something called the co- um the covid realities project where people speak about how um the the pandemic has affected them particularly in terms of welfare for example which which has um put those uh, recipients of welfare front and center in terms of talking about the problems that they've been through um and something else that i wanted to pick up on that Fran mentioned was um, policy policy for young people, not not catching up with the reality of the the conversation. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I interviewed some young people who were working for delivery apps, on zero hours contracts or you know the the classic gig economy workers and they'd fallen through the gaps in some of some of these schemes that Rishi Sunak had had unveiled which were very successful schemes you know the furlough scheme was 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 a particularly good piece of policy but they had fallen through these cracks because it was almost like the government didn't understand how the world of work works yet. And obviously young people are at the front line of that um yeah they're the, they're the ones who you know have been most impacted by unemployment during the the pandemic for example and and that is because you know the world of work isn't set up for them um it's not paying and i think you know anything that can kind of show that even, you know, even from the business perspective, if we're talking about a conservative government, anything can, can, that can show that we're sort of losing potential, losing productivity even, although it sounds very, uh, it sounds very um, uh, you know, hard-headed, would be a way of motivating um, policymakers and politicians perhaps to think about what they're missing from neglecting young people and what they're missing from not catching up with the way that the world of work is changing.
1: I think you've spoken to one of the benefits that I think as I see it of involving young people is around bringing voices that might be in the minority. So I think gig economy workers are something between five or 10% of the workforce, depending on how you view it. So obviously that's a minority experience in the workplace, but it's a huge risk of precarity that is experienced there. And I think it's a really nice way of thinking about how you can involve a whole breadth of perspectives in the work. So thank you for sharing that. I'm drawn as well to that idea that participation allows you to think about a range of different experiences. Claire and Nan, you both mentioned in your own way the role of unpaid care in thinking about the cost of living crisis and the effect it has on young people and young women. Uh, Nan, if I could come to you, I just wondered if you wanted to share any reflections on how we can specifically centre the experiences of those with responsibilities for others or dependents uh, in a moment where the crisis might feel looming.
3: Definitely, and I think there's, that's the one thing that I think can be connected to all the sort of quote-unquote cost of living crisis is, you know, unpaid carers um, save on average the country um, you know anywhere between two to four billion pounds, depending on what calculation you use, you know, that's money that would otherwise have to come from NHS budgets and social care budgets and, and local county budgets, but in return they don't get the support that they require, unpaid carers Especially young unpaid carers are generally not um, eligible for carers' allowance. Carers allow to have to be 16 or over. You can't be in full time education um, and you can't work um, you can't earn over, I think, that £132 at the last count a week. So, you know, loads of young people are completely bombed out of that first rung of support straight away. You can get support from Universal Credit and um, um, a carers' element that's £156 a month. Um, but again, that is a minimal amount for what is the full-time job on top of studying and work and education. And again, universal credit is very, very tricky to get if you're in full-time education as well. Um, and I think that unpaid carers often flux through the cracks and there's a couple of reasons for that. Is one, the government's, no government has yet recognised the, the huge amount of money that unpaid carers save them and that they need to be compensated for that. But also there is a huge swath of unpaid carers that simply don't see themselves as unpaid carers, they see themselves as good sons or daughters or neighbours or, or family members, they don't see it as uh, you know something to, to label themselves with. So we know here in Scotland we have um, hundreds of thousands of unpaid carers, um, but we also know that there is a good proportion of them that would not call themselves unpaid carers, they won't register with a local carer centre to get this help and support they need. Um, and a lot of that is because if you apply and then you get carers on it, that's great, it's 67 pounds a week. It works out something like 195 an hour for 35 hours worth of care. Um, now our, our paid carers aren't paid that much, but they are paid significantly more than that. Um, and you look at unpaid carers and you can see how they are negatively impacted, especially when it comes to young people. You know, They've already got all the issues that we've already spoken about on this panel tonight. They've already got all those pressures, but if you add unpaid care to that, that becomes almost untenable. You know, young people are at crisis point, special unpaid carers, and the support just isn't there, um, and that's something that I think is highlighted in Fran's research is, you know, the precarity of the economic situation of young people is very, very precarious. I'd been an unpaid onto on top of that, I'm not sure that there's many that don't tip over the edge.
1: Thanks, Nan. And if we have more time, I'd love to dig into that kind of idea of how do you meet people at how they see themselves to understand their issues as opposed to add that language, like you say, that they might not associate with. Claire, I wonder if you had any reflections from your work around this? I mean, a- absolutely. The, you know,
4: the gendered nature of unpaid work is, is something that has come to the fore, I think, in the pandemic. And we, we saw even pre pandemic that um, women were doing 60% more unpaid work than men, whether that's cooking, cleaning, taking care of their own children or taking care of other family members. And in our peer research, we had stories of the pressure on on young women who are homeschooling, looking after older relatives, you know, ferrying younger siblings around um, and doing much more of that work. And and going back to the point about the cost to the economy of this is really interesting findings by McKinsey that showed that if we enabled women to fulfill their full potential in the workplace, we could add 148 billion pounds to the economy by 2030. And and when fathers work flexibly and share the childcare, mothers are twice as likely to be able to advance their careers compared to when fathers work traditionally. So there's a huge agenda here about how we shift responsibility of care, both um, for youngest, you know, it's, it's both for childcare, but it's Care responsibilities more broadly away from from women and younger women, um, and, and we know that there are places in the world that are doing this very well by, for example, paying decent um, parental leave to men, uh, and I have use it or lose it parental um, leave that's properly paid in places like Iceland. but that means that men are looking after children and women are are contributing to the economy and in the workplace at some of the highest levels in the world. So it's a problem that can be solved. Um,
1: Uh, You have seamlessly moved me on to my final question for you all as well, which is that obviously we've covered a lot of the challenges, but I'd love to close off with a note of optimism perhaps and think about some of the things we might be able to do uh, to improve young people's lives. Uh, I'd like to ask you the same question each, and uh, please humor me because I know it is an impossible ask for just a few minutes. Uh, But I wondered if each of you had an important change you thought might improve young people's lives at this current moment, or maybe even a glimmer of hope you've seen elsewhere like that Iceland example of where things might be done differently. Hey, You've come off me, have you got anything to add? Yeah
4: um, I mean I think that you know a, a silver lining out of Covid is flexible working as we've been talking about. I know at the moment flexible working is still the preserve of the higher paid uh, workers with two-thirds accessing it compared to a third of lower paid workers but I think there is a, a cultural shift and with the employment bill coming up later in the year, um, I hope that we will get uh, the right to request for flexible working for all workers from day one. Um, Young Women's Trust and other organisations, we're pushing for that to go onto adverts so that workers know when they're applying for a job that flexible working is available to them. I think that will make a huge difference over time, uh, particularly for uh, young women with caring responsibilities joining, joining the workplace. Um, but also for young men, as men you're talking about, with caring responsibilities, and we'll we'll shift shift the dial, I think, over
1: time. Thanks, Claire. Fran, I know you covered some of this in your work as well. Was there anything from your perspective that you think would help improve the current situation?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, it is a difficult question. I think, um, for me, what I'd really love to see um, is decision-makers prioritizing fairness for young people in policy um, you know it shouldn't be the case that young people under 23 aren't entitled to living wage just because of their age it's not fair that they receive less in benefits just because of their age which is currently the case um, you know because the cost of living isn't lower for most young people gas and energy isn't cheaper for young people a basket of food isn't cheaper for young people in the supermarkets filling up your car doesn't cost less if you're a young person rent isn't tiered to mean that young people can pay less. So, you know, we can't assume that all young people are able to lean on their families for support. And even for those who can, I don't think we should be sort of forcing them into a situation where they have to choose between independence and economic security as they grow up. So yeah, that, I would really like to see parity in our policies and a, a kind of real genuine commitment to entering young people's voices and needs in decision-making and to understand what that actually looks like from their perspectives. Um, and not just rhetoric, but genuine care from people who actually have the power to change things. So that's my hope. I'm hoping to see more glimmers, uh, more opportunities, where that's happening. Um, but yeah, that's what I would like to see.
1: Thanks, Fran. Nan, I'm sure you agree with much of that. Did you have anything to add? You know, the, I have saw a real
3: glimmer of hope, um, and it is a very, very specific thing. But So um, we've talked about unpaid care, but maybe I've not spoken um, enough about kind of the impact of care experienced young people, but Mark Jakeford and the Welsh Government have just announced that um, they're going to do a, a UBI pilot for all care experienced young people. I think that is, I mean, I personally think UBI is, a, is a really the way forward. We look at how we can um, fully support people that gives them that extra flexibility and work that Claire was talking about, but also that freedom to do more with their family, to better their mental health. And I think the, the UBI pilot that Mark Drake for Denise Government are piloting around care experience young people has a very specific um, group of young people with very specific challenges. Um, I think that could be really be kind of the kicking off point for um, UBI pilots for unpaid carers, UBI pilots for young women, for, for um, young people in general. And I think that's where I hope the conversation is going. UBI has that opportunity not only to bring parity to what is a very disjointed, and as I was talking about, a very, very hard to engage with benefit system and make it something far more uniform and something that, you know, yes, you the, the universality of it means that there will be people who are slightly better off that do get a wee bit extra, but actually that £1,200 a month eh, for a care experienced person is going to mean more to that care experience person than it will with somebody richer, so there's that balance in that to make, but I mean, I think that's a real glimmer of hope, and I'm hoping it's something that other governments follow suit with.
1: Thank you so much, And uh, Anoush, if you did have anything to add, please do uh, share with us. Yeah,
0: I promise I'm not just going to nick everyone else's <laughs> ideas. Um, I think for me, from the reporting that we've done, um, one of the most important things that could really change the prospects and also the confidence, you spoke a lot about confidence in the future of young people, um, would be housing. Um, it's quite a broken uh, situation at the moment, but um, there are some, you know, really interesting, I mean, Nan Nern- mentioned, mentioned the UBI pilot there are some really interesting pilots happening with housing as well so one of our reporters went to um, a a location in Peckham where they're building 33 houses which are specifically for uh, young people who who have fallen into homelessness and who um where the rent will be capped at just a third of their income and he spoke to some of the people who would be living in these in these houses and you know just the way that they were speaking about their futures was very different from from some of the language that you heard Fran in, in your report you know they were saying I'm looking forward to saving and maybe I can even save for a mortgage one day that's not something I could ever imagine doing before so I think Changing the I mean, obviously, building more social housing would would make a huge difference, but also changing um, the way that uh, sort of the private rental market works would be would be particularly um, would be pati- particularly transformative for young people Nen said that, um, you know, young people are obviously more likely to live at home or be in the private rental sector. Um, And so, trying to make that more affordable for young people would would make a huge difference, as well as trying to increase the housing stock in in general. Um, You know, and that's you know before you even get onto the idea of even owning housing. I mean, we need to change the conversation about that. Um, I know that Kirsty Ullyot said that she was, her quotes were taken out of out of context, but there is that kind of intergenerational sneeriness about why young people you know can't afford houses. But you know, what is it's something that should motivate politicians, particularly the politicians in government. You know, what is a capitalist society if, if people, if the next generation can't own capital? Um, so I think, you know, that housing is is probably, for me, from the reporting that we've done, probably the most important policy area to focus on in terms of our young people's future.
1: Thank you so much, uh, each of you, for rising to that challenge of solving this crisis. Um, It's been a great discussion and I'm sure we could have gone on for much longer today, but that is all we've got time for. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for talking to us and sharing your insights on how we might navigate what we know to be a difficult economic situation and put financially insecure young people at the center of our responses. It can feel daunting to take on the challenges that are structural and complex, as we've discussed, I think there's so much space for alliance and collaboration between those of us in the room today, those of you joining online, and young people and others who are experts in their own experience. So to those of you watching, I do encourage you to keep up with the work of each of our excellent panellists, Anoush, Claire, Nairn and Fran, and of course, take a look at our recent report from the RSA, The Cost of Independence, if you haven't already. Please do stay tuned to the RSA's channels for more events like this and updates on our research work, and you can hit subscribe on the YouTube on the YouTube uh, and visit the RSA website to find out what we're up to and how you can get involved. It just leaves me to say thank you to our panellists, Zanoush, Fran, Claire, and Nen, and to everyone who has joined us online today and have a great rest of your day.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.